Welcome to this episode of Spies of London. This episode is part two of our Cold War Mayfair walk. In part one, we started in Grosvenor Square Gardens near the Millennium Hotel and the old American Embassy, walked down South Audley Street past Purdy's Gun Shop, took a left into Mount Street. We crossed over into Mount Street Gardens where we saw the bench used for a chalk mark as part of a signalling system, and then we left Mount Street Gardens back onto South Audley Street to see the number 8 lamppost where another chalk mark was applied as a signalling system as well. Part 1 ended at the lamppost. Now for a long time I used to take a detour down one of the side streets out to the Egyptian embassy where I talked about the five KGB traitors, Burgess and McLean, Kim Philby, Anthony Blunt and the fifth man John Cairncross. But there is an earlier Spies of London episode called Stalin's Englishman about Guy Burgess and friends. So I won't cover that in too much detail here, and it has nothing to do with the Egyptian embassy. But if you do like embassies, or if you have a particular relationship with Egypt, it's worth taking a quick look down the side street marked on Google Maps. And then as you come back, you'll be going past the Qatar embassy as well. I used to set this up as a game for people where I said, stop when you get to the Qatar embassy, and everybody always walked past it. And the reason for making this point is that the smaller the country or the the weaker the relationship with Britain or the newer the relationship with Britain, the smaller the embassy tends to be. So North Korea famously is a semi-detached house in Surrey somewhere. Qatar is quite grand, but neither Qatar or Egypt are anything close to the American or Saudi Arabian embassies, and it's particularly the Saudi one which I find most fascinating. So if you do like the Cambridge Spies, the Cambridge Five, please do look at the earlier episode in Spies of London, which covers them all in great detail. So we come to the favourite stretch for me on this walk. As you come down to the end of South Audley Street, the T-junction is onto Curzon Street. Turn left onto Curzon Street, and very soon you will see a nice-looking but fairly nondescript office building, and over the main entrance you will see the sign for Leckenfield House. Now, I was always very anxious about stopping outside the front door here, especially as during office hours this is quite a busy entrance. I used to take people down the side of the building onto Chesterfield Gardens, and there you can quite easily touch the stonework that used to be the headquarters of MI5. It was where David Cornwell, John le Carre used to work, Guy Liddell, and many other famous names, including Thomas Harris, more later. So the great thing about Leckenfield House is the history of the spy writers, John Bingham, John le Carre, have all worked there. So it's not much of a leap to imagine that their early works, you know, the spies that, that were in those books were based effectively in Leckenfield House. It's why a lot of early John le Carre books have locations around Curzon Street and South Audley Street in Mayfair. And it makes it really dramatic for me, especially on the walk, to imagine these guys, you know, at the time, just normal agents. Although John Bingham, I think, carried on his career as a writer, and that's how John le Carre knew him. People say that John Bingham is the basis for George Smiley. But they were fairly normal agents at the time, working for the British government in an office in London. Nothing too exotic about it. And... Looking at the building today, there's absolutely nothing exotic about it. It's a really nice building, but it's not as grand as Thames House, the current headquarters, and it's not on the scale of Vauxhall Cross, the MI6 headquarters either. On my Westminster walk, we look at the new MI6 building, which was opened in 94, and compare it to the old one, Broadway, 
where John le Carré worked later on in his career. And they are vastly different in scale and scope. I actually prefer the old ones, but that's a personal preference. So the other good thing about Leckenfield House is it's where MI5 was based when Spycatcher, the author of Spycatcher, Peter Wright, was suspicious of his boss, Hollis. And he thought that Hollis was a Russian spy. Although Peter Wright wrote the book with a grudge against MI5, effectively, there was some disagreement over pensions and payouts at the end of his career. And the book has largely been discredited. It was very famous in the 80s because it was banned. But it was not banned in Australia. It got published there. Copies leaked over here. I've read it. It's a riveting read. It's a fascinating book. But it is the book of somebody who is absolutely obsessed with finding moles and spies behind every cupboard. Although it would be easy to blame Peter Wright and say, you know, he was a fantasist. I I actually honestly believe that the environment that these people work in, especially in these years, when there were really moles and traitors around, Kim Philby working at Leckenfield House too, these people were real. They were traitors, they did exist, and they were trying to work against Britain and America. And of course, once you've got five moles, you think, well, why wasn't there six or seven or eight or nine? And you start looking for them. And then you think everybody's suspicious. And this is exactly why the traitor, why the mole is so pervasive, why it's so attractive in culture, in in books and films. Because the traitor, the liar, is your friend, your colleague, the person next door, the boss, the wife, the boyfriend. The traitor is everybody. The traitor is normal. And the traitor goes to lengths to show how normal they are. And it becomes it can become a paranoid fantasy. And Peter Wright definitely fell into that camp. And there were others too. He was only famous because he wrote about it and because the book got banned. You can look at Leckenfield House on the internet. You can compare it to Thames House, the new MI5 headquarters. And it's quite clear that today's MI5 is significantly bigger than the MI5 we're talking about here. If you were standing where I stand on this walk, you were on the corner of Curzon Street and Chesterfield Gardens. And at number six, Chesterfield Gardens you would be looking at the house of Thomas Harris. Now, Thomas Harris is a fascinating character. He's not British, but he was involved in Operation Fortitude and other double-cross episodes. His job, with many others, was to pretend to the Germans that D-Day was going to happen near Calais and not in Normandy. This was a very intricate, very detailed disinformation campaign, which was ultimately successful and helped to ensure the success of D-Day and the Normandy landings. Thomas Harris was half British, half Spanish. Now, interestingly, he used to host drinks evenings for Philby, Burgess, Blunt, and who else? Anurin Bevan, one of the politicians of the time. Also Victor Rothschild, Guy Little and Dick White, later himself the head of MI5 and MI6. I seem to remember that's unique, that only one person has been the head of both services. This group was known as the Chesterfield Gardens Mafia, because it was so close to the office. Perhaps that's why Thomas Harris rented the house. It's a very large, grand house. It's a terrace, but it's got an ornate entranceway. And today they're worth millions and millions of pounds. Back then they would have been less expensive, but it does show that these guys had money. Victor Rothschild, of course, famous, part of the Rothschild dynasty. These people were either rich themselves or senior politicians, influential in the British civil service. Aristocrats, sons of aristocrats, Philby's father went to Westminster School, as did Philby himself. They were very well-to-do, well-heeled, high-class 
British men from the establishment, and Chesterfield Gardens is absolutely in the heart of Mayfair, an establishment property. I love walking down Chesterfield Gardens. There's always a Ferrari or a Lamborghini outside. I think very few of these occupants would know about the history of this house and Thomas Harris. Thomas Harris died a violent death. A lot of the spies went off the rails. Burgess was a drunk. Philby himself suffered with immense pressures and stresses. Many of them died before their time. So we've had Chesterfield Gardens, we've had Leckenfield House. And after Leckenfield House, if you come back out onto Curzon Street and walk down Curzon Street to the Curzon Cinema, cross over so that you're standing outside the cinema and turn around so that you're looking at what looks like a, a, a Middle Eastern palace, you are looking at a Middle Eastern palace, the embassy of Saudi Arabia. It's the grandest of all in Mayfair, in my eyes, much grander even than the old American embassy. It's got a U in and out drive. It's always got armed police on the gates and sometimes opposite because they rent offices opposite as well near the cinema. It is highly guarded by the Saudis, by the British police, and it's very grand. You can stand on the corner of the Curzon Cinema, look into the embassy, and they have open days there and you can go around and take a look. When I was starting this walk, the Saudis had not been naughty for a number of years. And now, of course, we have the murder of Khashoggi. We have other suspicious activities. We have the sheikh down in the hotel. There's a real power struggle going on in Saudi, perhaps partially because of the loss of oil revenue, the change in dynasty, perhaps because these things ebb and flow anyway. Saudi is in the news again at the moment. It's worthwhile taking that in, thinking about that, and then turning back to the Curzon Cinema. And this is the point where I sometimes talk about Ian Fleming. I do have a book on Ian Fleming by Andrew Lysett, which I'm going to be reviewing in a future episode, so I won't say too much about him. But it's interesting to me that the Curzon Cinema, the Bond film, and all the other films that have been shown here, is right in the heart of diplomatic Mayfair. Right in the heart of the Cold War. Now, if you walk down the side street with the cinema behind you, you will eventually come to a blue plaque up on the left. I think it's blue, it could be green. But it's the sign for Shepherd Market, and it shows that this is a very old part of Mayfair. But not as old as you might think. If you walk into Shepherd Market, I normally cross over in between the restaurants by the post box, and you can walk through restaurants where they're set out in the courtyard, in the, in the corridor there, very much like a European city where they're expecting good weather, there's awnings and canopies and so on. And you walk straight ahead, eventually you'll come to a phone box, and if you stop at the phone box, you can sort of spin around and take a look at the old market buildings. It was an indoor market, not an outdoor market. And the market stalls happened inside the central rectangular building. It's a very large warehouse type building. And why are we stopping in Shepherd Market? Well, it has a long history. Patrick Lee Fermer, the famous SOE agent, had a flat here when he came to London. Marcus Pym in John le Carre's A Perfect Spy had a flat here. Geoffrey Archer met a prostitute here, the one he subsequently lied about and went to prison over, and it was the subject of a famous book and film at the time, The Green Hat by Michael Arlen. And I'll be reading from The Green Hat just so you can get a flavour of Shepherd Market, especially as you're not standing there necessarily today while you listen to this. And the reason Shepherd Market is so crucial to Mayfair is because it's the site of the Mayfair. Yes, London's fair in May, on May Day, with the Maypole and the Morris Dancers and the May Queen. London's Mayfair took place in Shepherd Market before the market was here in the 1680s under James II. 
So Shepherd Market originally is where it Shepherd Market as it Shepherd Market as it was originally gave its name Mayfair to the region. Later on, Edward Shepherd came along in the mid 1700s and built the market buildings and set it up as a market. And Michael Arlen, the writer himself, lived opposite the grapes, which you will see in a few minutes as we walk towards Curzon Street again. Mama Cass from the Mamas and Papas and Keith Moon both died here. So to help you imagine Shepherd Market, if you're not actually walking this route, I thought a few sentences from page three of The Green Hat would be interesting. And Michael Arlen states, Shepherd Market is a collection of lively odours, bounded on the north side by Curzon Street, on the south side by Piccadilly, and on the west side by Hartford Street, on the east side by Half Moon Street, and rejoices therefore in the polite direction of Mayfair, as you will see printed on the notepaper of any of its residents. A flower shop which was opened in our lane lived for only six months, and that in spite of the gardenia gallantly affected by the old nobleman from Curzon Street every day. I, after having lived here six years, am, by the grace of God, leaving on the morrow. So I think Michael Arlen makes Mayfair sound beautiful. Uh, it's in an absolutely prime location. There's a florist, there's bars and restaurants. It's a sociable place. But it wouldn't have been quite as upmarket as it is now, and it's not upmarket now. Uh, relative to Mayfair, it's definitely much more accessible. Uh, perhaps a, a working-class lone bachelor looking to be a spy wouldn't be able to afford a, a flat here now, wouldn't be able to afford to rent a flat here now. But it's definitely not got the grandeur of the rest of Mayfair. But even then, the the novelist, the the narrator here, is happy to be leaving Mayfair, happy to be leaving Shepherd Market. And there is something sinister about the place. It's a place for social meeting and interaction, but also for spying and depression. And a lot of the spooks would debrief their spies and agents in rooms above Shepherd Market. Social on the ground floor, sinister upstairs. And I think that's how I like to think of it. We will be walking past the grapes, heading up towards Hayward Hill and Trumpers Barbers, where there is a really good John le Carre story to come. And then the walk proceeds past Flannings Hotel and back down to Green Park Station. But I think that's plenty for episode two. There is one more episode to come for our Mayfair walk. And if you are walking this route, it should take you about an hour or so on your own, maybe a bit longer. It's always a bit longer with the group because we get lots of questions. And I want to try and simulate the questions somehow. I might put up a blog page where you can put questions and I can answer them. That might be a nice way to do it. But for today, for now, thank you for listening. This is the end of part two of Cold War Mayfair with Spies of London. <laughs>